Hi everyone, I'm Emily Chang and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Imagine the ability to cure genetic disease for generations to come, to inoculate the human race against the next COVID-19 before it becomes a pandemic, or in a darker scenario, to choose the color of your baby's skin. Dr. Jennifer Doudna pioneered a technology that may one day be able to do just that, and it's one of the biggest scientific breakthroughs of our lifetimes. It's called CRISPR, a bacterial defense system that can edit genetic material. It already shows promise in eradicating malaria mosquitoes, appearing to cure patients with sickle cell anemia, improving cancer therapy, and diagnosing COVID-19 more quickly. And at the height of the pandemic in 2020, Doudna, along with Emmanuel Charpentier, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their CRISPR innovations. But there are major ethical questions looming. How and when is it right to edit a gene? Is CRISPR playing God? One Chinese scientist claims he's already edited the genes of twin girls, giving them immunity to HIV and sparking an international uproar. Right or wrong? One thing is clear. CRISPR will change the human race forever. Joining me on this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, biochemist and CRISPR co-inventor Jennifer Doudna. You grew up in Hawaii, and I am so curious. I grew up in Hawaii as well. How did your upbringing shape your curiosity about the natural world and the origins of life? When I think back on that time in my life, it was kind of a wonderland. Um, you know well uh, what it's like in Hawaii. It's a very special place. And I found myself just wondering, you know, how is it that these plants and animals have evolved to be specialized for Hawaii? And there are so many examples of that in the natural environments in the islands there. So I, I de definitely think that was behind my thinking about, you know, why it would be interesting to become a scientist in the future. As a budding scientist, you developed an early fascination with RNA well before it took center stage in the pandemic and also now a key player in vaccines. What is it about RNA that gripped your attention? When I was an undergraduate in college, we were, or at least I felt like the, the, um, the message we received was that RNA was kind of the boring intermediary between DNA, which encodes all genetic information in cells, and proteins that do the work in the cell. And so those were kind of the important big molecules in biology. And then there was this kind of boring uh, intermediary called RNA. However, when I got to graduate school, I met uh, the, the um, person who would become my future advisor, Jack Shostak, and he was fascinated by the possibility that RNA, in fact, was the original biological molecule on Earth, that it was really responsible for the evolution of life as we know it here on Earth. And that idea was so interesting and so compelling to me that I, you know, I, I joined his lab and I started studying RNA and I sort of never left it. <laughs> Now, you spent most of your career working at universities. You're joining us now from Berkeley, where there's a lab named after you. But you briefly ventured into the corporate biotech world in 2009 and worked at Chinentech for just two months. Why was that so brief and what did you learn? It was a really important experience for me, I have to say, even though short, because at the time I was I had been running my academic research lab for close to 15 years. And I was starting to question, uh, you know, what the impact of my work would really be. Was I, was I actually going to 
at the end of my career, feel that I had contributed to solving real world problems. And so that was a big motivation for me to join the team at Genentech, a wonderful company where I knew a number of, of the scientists and, and some of the, the leadership team. However, once I got to the company, I quickly realized that I just, I really missed my colleagues at Berkeley. I missed the academic environment of, you know, being able to just think crazy ideas and, you know, run into people in the coffee line and then chat about experiments in a way that would be very difficult to do in a company, of course, because you have to be very focused on, um, you know, the, the, the plans and, and development um, pipeline of the, of the company. Fortunately, my colleagues at Berkeley took me back and I refocused my efforts at the time on studying CRISPR, which in, in the end was, you know, turned out to be a very productive uh, line of work. It's been called molecular scissors, if you will. What is CRISPR and what can it do? It turned out that, uh, that CRISPR is in fact a system in bacteria that detects and cuts virus genetic material, whether it's DNA or RNA. And it was by studying how that actually works, and we did this in collaboration with Emmanuel Charpentier's lab um, to study the function of a protein known as CRISPR-Cas9. That line of research led to an understanding of the function of this molecule that allowed us to harness it as a tool for genetic manipulation, namely for altering DNA sequences in any cell in a precise fashion, in a programmable fashion that gives scientists now a very powerful way to understand the function of genes, but importantly also to change the function of genes in a targeted way. When did you realize the power and usefulness of this discovery? Well, I would say almost right away. I mean, it's a relatively simple uh, technology that can be easily adapted and adopted to different applications. And so very quickly after we published our work in the summer of 2012, labs around the world began to adapt CRISPR for various kinds of genome editing, and it's just increased since then. The pace of CRISPR research, the application has been startling. It's been incredible to watch. What are the current use cases that inspire you the most? Well, I always think about Victoria Gray, who was the first patient with sickle cell disease to be treated with CRISPR here in the U.S. Her story is so inspiring. I mean, you know, she is somebody who is benefiting right now from the CRISPR technology to be able to live a normal life without uh, being impacted by uh, an otherwise quite devastating genetic disease. And other patients are, in, are similarly uh, being impacted by the CRISPR technology. So I think that's one area where we're, we'll see increasing developments, uh, more and more clinical trials that are starting. In fact, at the Innovative Genomics Institute that I started a few years ago uh, here in the Bay Area, we have just received approval from the Food and Drug Administration for our own investigational new drug or IND uh, trial for sickle cell disease. So, you know, this is really an extraordinary moment, I think, in, in terms of thinking about cures for genetic disorders. Once CRISPR was confirmed as a gene editing tool, leading researchers raced to start their own companies and it turned into kind of a competitive free-for-all. And the battle for the intellectual property is still going on to determine, you know, who can commercialize this technology. How do you reflect on all of that? One thing important to point out is that 
despite the ongoing uh, disputes over patents, which, by the way, isn't unique to CRISPR. I would, I would argue that any, any really exciting technology is going to have multiple claims uh, to it. In the case of CRISPR, um, because the technology is relatively straightforward to deploy, it's meant that the field has moved quickly. As you mentioned, there are multiple companies, there are multiple companies that are now publicly traded and more coming down the pike, um, as well as all sorts of, of new companies and, um, and then established uh, firms that are ad adopting the technology as well. So from a scientific perspective, I think that's exactly what should be happening, right? This is such an, an enabling technology. You want it to see it deployed as widely as possible. This is my conversation with Jennifer Doudna, biochemist and CRISPR co-inventor. Coming up, we dive deep into the morality and ethics of gene editing and Doudna's reaction to the world's first so-called designer babies. Her thoughts on using CRISPR to edit the genes of human embryos. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. research and discovery of CRISPR, did you start becoming worried about the ethical implications? Well, quite early on, because it was clear from, you know, those very early days that CRISPR was a broadly enabling technology that, you know, was useful and, you know, worked in, in essentially any cell type. And that meant that it worked not only in fully developed differentiated cells or tissues, but it could also be used in embryos. And in fact, that was one of the very early uses in the research world was to make, uh, you know, modified mice uh, at the, you know, at the, at the uh, embryo level. So those mice then had genetic changes introduced by CRISPR that could be passed on to future generations. And it didn't take too much uh, of a stretch to think about uh, the possibility that, that that could also be done in human embryos, which of course, I think comes along with, with just very um, profound ethical questions. I think it was 2015, uh, we organized the first meeting uh, out here in California on the topic of human germline editing, human embryo editing with CRISPR. Mm -hmm. That developed into a much broader international effort to understand the technology and importantly, to put in place criteria that scientists globally should respect in terms of uh, applications of CRISPR, especially in the human germline. Let's talk a little bit more about the reasons. If and when to edit genes is a profound and complicated question. How do you even begin to, that an to answer that question? I think, first of all, one has to ask, are there situations where, at least in principle, manipulating the human germlines in the embryo would be the best uh, possible way to deal with a genetic condition? Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm focused here on, you know, just really strictly things that relate directly to health rather than uh, changes that might be, you know, desirable to somebody for some reason, but actually have no uh, benefit to health. And right now we know that although, yes, it can be used in human embryos and there are, you know, multiple scientific publications about that, we also know that it's difficult to control it and to make sure that editing is happening exactly as 
the uh, scientist or experimenter might uh, might uh, be desiring. And so that to me is already a red flag that, you know, even if there were situations where we said, gee, that might be the best way to deal with a disease, um, you know, the technology still needs to be further developed before that would be, I think, even a, a possible uh, strategy. Every new gene editing technology has its sort of cultural shocker moment. You had the first test tube baby, Dolly the sheep, and then of course, in 2018, the so-called designer babies where twin girls, their genes were allegedly edited by a Chinese scientist, He Jiangkui. What was your first thought when you heard that news? Um, well, uh, shock for sure, uh, definitely. Um, you know, I guess it wasn't entirely unexpected that someone would try to do this. I had no idea that it would happen as soon as it did. But, um, you know, it had been discussed at meetings, of course. And, and that was, in, in fact, the purpose of these prior uh, you know, conferences on the topic. So it, it seemed, you know, it certainly seemed possible that someone would, would do this. I didn't think someone would, would actually proceed, however, to uh, actually create a pregnancy with edited embryos, um, as, as was announced in, in 2018. And I think it really was a wake-up call to the international community that we can't sit back and just say, well, you know, that that's a problem for the future. No, no, this is this is something we need to deal with right now and we need to take a strong stand. And I think fortunately that's exactly what happened. Are other scientists trying these things elsewhere? We really haven't heard about that kind of manipulation going on in certainly in any organized way. So I just think that at least I hope that the international reaction, which was really negative to, you know, to this 2018 announcement has, um, has, I think, at least for the time being, really put a damper on anyone that might be trying to do that kind of human manipulation for, you know, fame, for example. I do feel an ongoing sense that we need to be really proactive about this and not, not you know, not get complacent. And importantly, I, I include in, in sort of ethical considerations, also thinking about widespread availability and affordability of the technology, because I think, you know, this is something that we have to pay attention to. I mean, just thinking back to the example of, of Victoria Gray, who I mentioned earlier, who has received a CRISPR treatment for her sickle cell disease. Wonderful, you know, news about that. However, her therapy currently costs $2 million. So, you know, that's just not going to be affordable to most people around the globe that might need this. So we're working hard to think about ways that we can mitigate those costs. Wanting to eliminate a genetic disease seems like an important cause. Do you think the, the case, the moral case to eliminate a genetic disease is stronger than the case not to? I think we have to consider it, you know, on a case by case basis. I mean, one could argue, for example, like let's go back to sickle cell disease that, you know, right now the therapy is designed to be used in individuals and it doesn't make a germline change, right? It's not a change that they would pass on to children. It's just a change that affects their body. And so in that sense, it's like any, any other type of therapy or, or drug that we might use to treat disease. Um, whereas you could imagine that in a family that has a genetic disease that is, you know, 
is sort of, you know, spread across their family, many people inheriting a gene that, you know, predisposes them to disease. And believe me, I hear from uh, families like that almost uh, daily. You could imagine that, you know, at some point in the future, if the CRISPR technology were safe and robust, that some families might make the decision to, um, you know, to, to remove that disease-causing mutation at the source so that, you know, future generations don't have to worry about it. And I think that's, you know, that, that would make a lot of sense. But again, there's a number of things that have to happen, I think, before that will be possible. Back in the 70s, test tube babies were controversial, and now IVF is widely acceptable, accepted, available. Do you think it will be the same with CRISPR-edited babies? Over the coming decades, I think sure. I think absolutely, you know, that because this is what happens, isn't it? Is that, you know, people... Um, get comfortable with an idea if it's useful, you know, if it tr is proven, and, and this is, you know, this is still remains to be seen. Like if, if CRISPR proves to be useful um, and, 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 you know, kind of controllable in human embryos, and that is still in the realm of research, but if that were to happen, then, uh, you know, I think it becomes a possibility that in vitro fertilization clinics offer that to their uh, clients. And, and so then, you know, who, who should make that decision? Should governments uh, be regulating that? Well, that doesn't actually doesn't really happen for IVF clinics right now. In fact, you know, there's, as you probably know, there's, you know, different, different regulations across different states in the U.S. And, of course, in different countries, it's different. And so I think, you know, the same thing could possibly happen with CRISPR, where, you know, it becomes a, uh, something that, you know, some clinics offer it and, and parents will have to decide, do I want to do that or not? You're listening to my conversation with CRISPR co-inventor and 2020 Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna. Up next, amidst an ongoing pandemic, how the biochemist made a pivot in 2020 to advance CRISPR as a diagnostic technology for COVID-19. And after winning the Nobel Prize, Doudna shares inspirational advice to girls and women studying STEM fields everywhere. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. The ethical controversies around CRISPR came screeching to a halt when the pandemic hit. What was going through your mind when the world met COVID-19? Well, I think like, like, uh, like, like many people, uh, you know, it was quite, quite a shock. This was something that we really had to uh, face head on. And that was actually for me as a scientist, really a motivation for pivoting uh, the focus of our work, at least over the last year, to creating a clinical testing lab at the Innovative Genomics Institute and also to advancing CRISPR as a diagnostic technology. You've had this fascination with RNA for so long and did you ever think that your RNA specialty would have a moment like this, the key to fighting a global pandemic? Well, uh, no, I never thought that for sure. And, and let me just point out, since you brought up RNA, I think it's fascinating that, first of all, the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 is an RNA virus. So it's a piece of RNA that's, you know, been causing all this havoc. And furthermore, many of us have received vaccinations 
with RNA, right? So I received a vaccination that is a messenger RNA that carries a message into human cells telling them, make antibodies against this uh, virus protein. And so that's been, that's been also very interesting. So RNA to fight RNA. And then uh, with CRISPR, we have a third uh, type of RNA that potentially could be useful, I think, primarily in this case as a, a diagnostic tool, a way to detect the coronavirus RNA and report on its presence. Couldn't CRISPR one day also be used to edit our genes to make us less susceptible to viruses? Well, maybe. I mean, there's definitely speculation about that. You know, would it be possible to, um, you know, I think about it sort of like genetic vaccination in the sense that, you know, could we educate ourselves ahead of time to be, you know, sort of um, ready in case a virus shows up? And it's, you know, it's a tricky thing, right? Because, you know, you have to kind of know what to be ready for. And and so, uh, you know, there, there would have to be some interplay there. But I think already we're seeing opportunities to use CRISPR to edit immune cells. And this is being done in conjunction with cancer immunotherapy for patients, for example. So you could imagine taking that a step farther and saying, well, can we educate our immune cells to be ready for a virus? What do you say to the skeptics who say that CRISPR is playing God? Well, I guess my my answer there is that, um, you know, there are so, I mean, I I don't even know how one defines playing God because, you know, there's so many... uh, things, you know, ways that we manipulate our environment now. For example, all the food we eat is essentially engineered because of, you know, plant breeding uh, that's been going on for, you know, thousands of years, really. And so when new technologies come along, they enable new science. When new science is done, they enable new technologies, et cetera. And in the end, you know, th- that's really what drives human advancement. And it, d- it drives our economy in many ways. So I feel that overall this is all positive but you know but you know scientists really need to be engaged in you know accepting that responsibility for what they're doing and making sure that they're involved in the discussions and the you know decisions that have to be made as technology advances and that's certainly true for CRISPR let's go ahead another 100 years if the next covid-19 happens in another century how will things be different how will we be more prepared will our genes have already been edited to prevent us from getting the next big deadly disease i wonder i guess i, I imagine that um certainly within 100 years we will know so much more about our own genomes and you know the more we learn honestly the more complicated <laughs> it clearly is um but you know, but so there's, there, there'll be plenty to keep all of us busy. But, uh, but look, I think in a hundred years, we will know so much more about our own genetics, including the genetics of our immune systems and our interactions with uh, viruses. So my hope would certainly be that, you know, if the next uh, hundred year pandemic uh, comes along, that uh, we will be certainly much better prepared to, to manage it than we were for this one. So in the middle of this global pandemic in October, 2020, News came in that you won the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, which uh, you shared with Emmanuel Charpentier. Two women winning the Nobel Prize. Looking back on those days when you were told girls don't do chemistry, what do you have to say to inspire the girls out there who might want to follow in your footsteps? Well, it's, you know, just such a kind of humbling experience for me in a way, because I mean, who, you know, I I certainly never 
ever in a million years would have imagined that, you know, I would have won the Nobel Prize. And um, I'm even sort of shocked hearing myself say it right now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, but here's an interesting thing that's happened. And that is that I've heard from many, many girls and women since then, some of whom I knew from my past life, but some of, you know, many of whom I, I don't know, who have reached out from all over the world to um, tell me their stories, to tell me that our work is inspiring uh, to them. And I really hope that that message gets through very clearly to uh, students, especially to, to women or other people who feel maybe they have been um, excluded in some ways from or just been un underrepresented in the STEM fields that, you know, I certainly didn't come, I, I'm not a likely person to have won the Nobel in a way, you know, because I came from a, you know, a small town. Nobody in my family was a scientist. I just kind of wanted to do science. I thought it was cool. And, and I, that's the message I try to tell those students. You can do this. Well, thank you for paving the way for women and for all of the girls uh, who will come after. Um, and congratulations. Dr. Jennifer Doudna, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Studio 1.0. It's been wonderful to have you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Allison Weiss. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson, with production assistance from Lauren Ellis and Mallory Abelhausen. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg.